You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. Good morning, church. Yeah, good morning, church. There we go. Okay, good, good, good. It's good to see you. Glad you're here this morning as we continue in our study of the Gospel of Mark. Um, if you're a guest with us, I want to especially welcome you. Glad that you're here today. My name is Jordan. I serve as one of our pastors here at Redeemer. I have the privilege of leading us and preaching and a vision. And it is a privilege to get to open God's Word, to study it, to, to prepare, to teach it and preach it. And we have a, a wonderful uh, passage of Scripture this morning to work through. Before we get back into the text, I do want to tell you about one thing uh, briefly. If you are looking for an opportunity, maybe you're not looking for it, but you need it. Uh, It's looking for you. If you are looking for an opportunity to grow in your knowledge and understanding of God, uh, we have an incredible opportunity for you. It starts on January the 18th. Our Redeemer Equip classes kick off. And this semester, what we're doing through Redeemer Equip is uh, we have a men's cohort and then we have a women's cohort. There's actually two women's groups that will be going through J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God, this semester. And so it's a wonderful opportunity, whether you're new to the faith or you've been following Jesus for decades, to jump in and to to continue to grow and understand who God is. I think it was Jen Wilkins once said, the heart cannot love what the mind does not know. And so the more that we come to know God and understand who he is, the more that our heart can grow to love him and serve him. And so I want to invite you, encourage you to jump in, to be a part of that. I think there's a contest between men and women who can get more signed up. I'm not sure. I might have just made that up. But if that kind of stuff motivates you, um, uh, register for for men's and women's equip this semester. We'd love to see you get involved. Okay. Um, if you're not already open to Mark chapter 10, would you, would you get there? Um, if you're taking notes, really four things as we walk our way back through our sermon text. First, we're going to see an interaction. So there's the interaction, then there's going to be a challenge, there's going to be a lesson, and there's going to be an invitation. An interaction, a challenge, a lesson, and an invitation. Last week, as we got back into our study of the gospel of Mark, we picked up in chapter 10, and we find Jesus beginning his journey to Jerusalem. He's on his way to Jerusalem. Last year, we spent uh, most of the year in the first half of Mark's gospel, and we're picking up as Jesus is heading to Jerusalem, where he will, uh, where he will bear his cross, and he will claim his crown. And as, as he's on his way to Jerusalem, the crowds are growing, the crowds are following him, and so is the anticipation of what is to come. And Mark 10 is an important chapter in this narrative. Jesus, in chapter 10, he's going to encounter a few different people in in chapter 10 who are coming to him with questions. They're coming to him with questions. And we're going to learn through these interactions two things. First, we're going to learn of what it means for Jesus to be king. Jesus is going to not just go to Jerusalem to be Savior, but he's going to go to Jerusalem to be Savior and Lord. And so we're going to learn what it means for him to be king, for him to be Lord. And then in these interactions, he's also going to teach us what it takes to enter his kingdom, what it requires to come into the kingdom of God. And we saw this last week with his interaction with the Pharisees. Jesus says, if you do not come to me like one of these little ones, like a little child, humble, emptied of pride, Pure in heart, you will not enter the kingdom of God. And this morning, we're going to learn more about what it means for Jesus to be king and what it takes to enter his kingdom through his interaction with a rich man. Let's pray, and we'll get back into the text. Holy Father, we come before you now, and we first say thank you. We do praise you, risen one, 
risen Son of God, we praise you, Jesus, for who you are, for what you've done for us, for what you invite us into, life in your kingdom. We pray as we look at this text, as we open your word, that you would speak to us. Holy Spirit, that you would be our teacher this morning, or that you would open our eyes to see ourselves clearly in light of your word, that you would open our ears to hear your nudges and the conviction and the encouragement and the instruction of the Holy Spirit, that you would open our hearts to obey and to receive. I pray for anyone here this morning that doesn't know you, that hasn't claimed your cross and crowned you as king. I pray, Father, that their eyes would be open and that you would even help them to see you as beautiful, to see your news, your message, your work as good, and that they would be saved through the preaching of your word this morning. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This text is something that the early church would have found unbelievably comforting and encouraging. Um, I want you just to think about the early church and the persecutions in which they experienced. Think about all of those in the, uh, in the first century that left behind houses and father and mother and brothers and sisters and land in order to follow Jesus and the persecution that that would have meant for them. This is a text. This would have been one of those thin places in their scriptures, even across uh, in their Bibles, across the, the, the globe today, this is a thin place in the Bible for many people. It's a place they go to often, places where poverty and persecution exist, places like Pakistan or Guatemala or India or parts of Southeast Asia where people are following Jesus in difficult and trying circumstances. This is a passage that was incredibly comforting. This is why Mark gives it to us and gives it to us the way that he did. For you and I, though, this might be an uncomforting passage of Scripture. This is, might not be the, place, the thin place in your Bible that you go back to time and time again. This is, in fact, one of those places in our Scripture where we maybe like to just kind of get on. When I did college ministry many, many years ago, we did a sermon series, and it was, the, the series was titled, Things I Wish Jesus Hadn't Said. And this was one of those passages. This was one of them. Why is this the case for us? Well, because we are a people of great wealth. We are a people of great material possession. And you say, hey, you know, man, I, I, don't, I don't know about, maybe you guys, I don't know about, but maybe not me. I'm kind of paycheck to paycheck. I'm not super wealthy. The reality is, is that if you live in this country, you are one of the most wealthiest people on the planet. We are people of great wealth and great possession. We live in a culture, we live in a society that values money and materialism and success. In fact, in our society, it's normal for people to leave behind mother and father and home and land to set off on a pursuit to do what? To go make it in the world, to get a job and to get money, to acquire possessions. And so we should pay attention this morning. We should turn the page slowly. We should approach our text today with humble and open hearts as we work back through it. And so we'll start with the interaction, Mark 10, 17 through 20. Look at it again. Verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Stop for a second. First thing that we need to, to note is that this man is a spiritual seeker. This man is a seeker. Mark says he's a man with great wealth in verse 22. The Gospel of Luke, Luke tells us that he was a ruler. He was a ruler. He was a man of a ruler of great wealth. Matthew adds that he's a young man. If you put all three of these together, we see why historically this man is referred to as the rich young ruler. 
Yeah, the rich young ruler. If we want to kind of try and understand what this man would have been like in Jesus' day, it would have been something like this. He's a man who is put together. He's very buttoned up. He has degrees from the right places. He's likely maybe 28 to 30. He's already made his millions. Um, most people that are young and wealthy are also good looking and fit. So it's probably, probably easy on the eyes. He's respected. He's admired by his peers. He would have been a lay leader in his church. That's what it would have meant to be a ruler. He was a leader in his local synagogue. This guy is citizen of the year type of material. He has financial security. He has social respect. He has material comforts, success in his career, many friends, personal accolades. Yet, yet, he's seeking. He isn't satisfied. He's unfulfilled. He finds himself coming, not running, desperate to the spiritual guru of the day, the guy that has the biggest crowds and the most following and has kind of this, you know, been anointed this Messiah, the king has come and he's seeking and he hits his knees before him and he says, essentially, am I enough? Have I done enough? All of the things that I have, will it last? He's seeking, he's a spiritual seeker. In fact, this man reminds me of so many people that I know who deep in their soul, underneath all of the exterior that's put together and that looks good, there's an inner poverty haunted by uncertainty and insecurity. Is it enough? Have I done enough? Will it last? What's next? He is truly spiritually hungry. He has the world, but his soul isn't satisfied. And maybe you've been there. Maybe some of you are here this morning and that's where you are. Maybe that's why you're here. One of the things that we should note about this man is that his posture is as sincere as anybody that we've seen thus far in Mark's gospel. He comes to Jesus with urgency. He runs to him. He honors him. He hits his knees. And, as, and Jesus doesn't condemn him. Jesus is good about sniffing out pride and insincere motives. Jesus doesn't do that. In fact, the text tells us in verse 21 that he looks at him. He sees him. He sees into him. He perceives him. And he loves him. He loves him. Look at verse 18. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. This is a curious response. In fact, even still today, scholars today are, are not really sure what to make of verse 18. Here's what I think. I'll just give you my opinion here. I think that Jesus has this as his response, starts this way with this man as he's on this, he's going to kind of be on this process of taking this man deeper to get to his heart. And I think he starts with this response to kind of take his eyes off of himself and off of the horizontal and point him Godward. Why do you call me good? No one is good, but God alone. I think Jesus gives this response to, to, take, uh, to make him stop thinking about his own work and his own striving and his own efforts. In other words, I think what Jesus is doing here is Jesus is saying to him, why are you coming to me? Are, are you coming to me for a boost? So there, there's a lot of people that come to Jesus for a boost. They, they come to Jesus for affirmation. They come to Jesus and they want Jesus, they basically come to Jesus and, and saying, Jesus, I'm a bit stuck. Can you kind of help me get over the hump? Can you help me get over, the, can you give me a boost to get back to saving myself, seeking my own happiness, building my own kingdom? I'm a bit stuck and I need a boost. And I think that this man might be coming to Jesus for a boost. And Jesus is saying, why are you coming to me? 
Are you coming to me in faith? Are you coming to me in belief? Are you coming to me in surrender? Are you believing that I am God, that I am from God? Are you coming to me as Lord? And no doubt there is a pause here. Um, have you ever been asked a question that you need some time to process? It kind of catches you off guard. I think that's what's happening here. I think this, there's probably a bit of a pause. I think the man is processing Jesus' question. Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. And then Jesus continues, verse 19. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all of these I have kept from my Youth. Jesus points him back to the commandments, which he would have known. I think Jesus, like a careful surgeon here, is working toward the man's heart. He's essentially saying, you know the law. You're a leader. You're sharp. You've lived honorably in your community. Notice that he adds, do not defraud to the Ten Commandments. I think what he's saying here is, you've made your riches, and you haven't done it by taking advantage of other people. You've lived honorably. You've, all of the horizontal stuff, you've done very, very well. You've lived a good life. You're moral, but what's missing? Why are you still seeking? Why are you unsatisfied despite the fact that you have it all, despite all that you've done? And here it comes, the challenge. Verses 21 through 22, look back at verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful. That word is not just like a, he went away sad. It's he went away grieved. If you've experienced grief, you know that grief isn't just sadness about what is. Grief is sadness about what's not. And so there's something here he can't do. He's sad not only because of what Jesus says to him, but what he can't give up. He's grieved. See, Jesus gets to the heart of the man's trouble. He does this in love. Don't miss that. He tells him the most important truth in love, in all of his life building, in all of his good works, in all of his commandment keeping, in all of his moralism. He has forgotten one thing. There's one commandment that he's missed. Which one is it? The most important commandment, the most central commandment, the commandment of all commandments, in which all commandments flow. Exodus 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me shall have no other gods. I am the Lord your God. See, for this man, money and possessions, perhaps the comfort that money and possessions give, perhaps the, the illusion of control that money and wealth and materialism gives, had become his God. It had become central in his life, central to his identity. You could say it this way, wealth and possessions ruled him. Wealth and possessions were Lord. So when Jesus says, I want you to trust me with your wealth, or he says, I want you to trust me more than your wealth, sell everything, give it to the poor, and come and follow me, he can't do it. He, he simply cannot do it. He goes away in grief, with sorrow in his heart, with his idol exposed. You see, if you want to know what your true God is, if you want to know what your real Lord is, ask yourself this question. What is it that I cannot live without? What is it? What is it that I cannot let go of? 
What is the thing that I can't give up? What's the thing that's so central to my identity that I cannot imagine my life without? And if there's something that starts to kind of fill in that blank for you, or even if there's something that you're like, I think that might fill in the blank for me, you've gotten to the source of your true Lord. You're starting to see your idols, starting to see your God. The thing that you truly live for, the thing that you most centrally love and serve, the thing that you're most passionate about, it's your God. It's become an idol. You see, for this man, it was possessions and wealth. And Jesus exposes it because he loves him and he wants to set him free from the emptiness of idolatry. Idolatry idolatry is empty. Please hear that. He wants to set him free from the emptiness of it, the, the dead end road that is idolatry. And perhaps for some of us in this room, living in our context and our culture, perhaps it's the same idol for you. Comfort, materialism, wealth, possessions, your heart is ruled by it. How do you know if that's you? How do you know that money isn't just money to you, but it's more than money to you? How do you know? Well, you can't give large amounts of it away. That's hard for you to do. You can't tithe. You you, you give some, but you can't tithe and go, well, I give more than other people, but other people don't have as much as you have. And so you can't give large amounts of it away. You You can't give it freely, generously. Then maybe it's more than money to you. How do you know that money is more than money to you? You get scared. You get uncertain and and you start to get fearful if maybe you have less of it in a season than you're accustomed to having in others. How do you know if money is more than money to you? You you see people who have more money than you or more possessions than you and you start to feel inadequate or insufficient. In other words, money isn't just a gift, a blessing to you. It's a scorecard. It's become a scorecard for your life and your significance. Some of you in the room, perhaps money... Is the most central ruling thing in your life. For others, it's something different. Maybe it's work. Maybe it's your career. It's, your, it's, your, it's what you've given your life to. It's what you've poured your life into. You can't imagine yourself if that thing wasn't underneath your email signature, whatever that might be. And if Jesus were to come to you and were to call you to something different, to, to call you by faith, step into a new season or a new career or a new oc- occupation or to step into some role in ministry, you couldn't imagine giving up that career. It's who you are. It defines you. It rules your life. For others, maybe it's a relationship. You've made another person central to your identity and your happiness, more central to your identity and happiness than God himself. For many of us, the temptation, especially living in the suburbs, is to make our children the most central thing in our lives, to allow our children to define us. They become the source of our meaning. They aren't a blessing from God to be stewarded. They are everything. And anytime we make anything other than God everything, we've made an idol. So for some, our children have become idols in our lives. For some, perhaps it's not something material. Maybe it's more interpersonal. Maybe it's more inside of us. I think one of the biggest idols that I'm seeing in our culture today among Christians is the idol of respectability. The idol of respectability. We want to be admired and respected by other people. So much so that we will shapeshift, that we will shrink back in certain settings because we want to be respected. The idol of respectability. You want so badly to be respected by others. Maybe it's the love of comfort. You love comfort so much that anything that inconveniences you, you won't do it. 
Even if Jesus asks you to do it, you won't do it. What is it that I cannot live without? What is it that truly rules my life? And here's what the text is telling us. That good, moral people can be idolaters. You see that? It's telling us that good things, good gifts from God. Listen, money is not evil. Money is not evil. Good gifts from God, like children and jobs and money and resources and possessions, can ultimately become ultimate things. They can become idols in our lives. John Calvin famously said that the human heart is like an idol factory. Listen to his words. Calvin says in Institutes, he says, Man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. Our hearts are always looking to worship the creation. He goes on, he says, Man's mind, full as it is of pride and boldness, dares to imagine a God according to his own capacity. What's Calvin saying? He's saying it's our nature to worship the creation and not even realize that we're doing it. It's our nature to make idols and think we're righteous. That's what Calvin is saying. To make idols and to think that God would affirm us in our idolatry is what Calvin is saying. And I think there's a sense, I think there's a measure of this in the text. Hear me for a minute. I think that the rich young ruler is coming to Jesus insecure and empty. And I think he's coming to Jesus and he's, he's hoping that Jesus would affirm him. I think he's coming to Jesus and he's hoping that Jesus will say, well done, you've done it all, boy." And what does Jesus say? Instead, Jesus says, I want you to imagine your life without money. I want you to imagine all you have is me. Jesus changes the question. Jesus says, am I enough? Am I enough for you? You see, Jesus is Lord. This is why he asked the question. He's Lord and he can be nothing else. He's Lord. And the sad part of the text is that despite Jesus' love for this man, the challenge was too much for him. He walks away in sorrow. And I want you to know that that's what idols do whenever they get deep roots and have deep grips on our life. They leave you empty. They never deliver what they promise. This man came to Jesus because he was unsatisfied in his soul and he leaves Jesus unsatisfied in his soul with sorrow. Not because Jesus doesn't satisfy, but because he couldn't and he wouldn't surrender his whole self even as idols, to the lordship of Christ. In the message, Eugene Peterson translates verse 22 this way. I want you just to hear the way that Eugene Peterson puts it. He says, the man walked off with a heavy heart. He was holding on tight to a lot of things, and he could not let go. I just want to ask you, church family, are there things that you are holding on to so tightly that they will keep you from Jesus? Are there things that you're holding on to so tightly that they're keeping you from life in the kingdom? That's the challenge of the text. Jesus then takes this interaction and takes this challenge and he teaches a lesson. The lesson's in verse 23 through 31. Look back at verse 23. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. 
It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. And they said to him, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and he said, with man it's impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Jesus takes the opportunity to teach a lesson. In Judaism of Jesus' day, those who had great wealth and great possessions were considered the righteous ones. They were the ones that God had put his favor upon, that God had blessed. And Jesus is flipping this upside down as he is doing in his ministry. You see why this was shocking. It's why Jesus not only repeats himself, he says it twice because it came as such a shock, but then he illustrates it. I, I imagine that this is like um, an analogy on the fly. Um, I, I often find myself doing analogies on the fly. Those never work out very well for me, but it seems like it works out great for Jesus. He's like, camel? I have a needle, that's how hard it is. It's hard for human beings whose hearts are like idol factories to enter the kingdom of God. It's hard, he says, but it's not impossible. See, that's the point. He's saying, he's not saying that people with a lot of wealth and possessions, people like you and I, he's not saying that we cannot enter the kingdom of God. He's saying it's, it's, it's difficult. He's saying it, it will take a miracle It will take a miracle of God's grace for people like you and I to enter the kingdom of God. That's what he's saying. It will take a miracle. Why? Why? Well, because the wealthy, according to Jesus, the wealthy in this life are actually at a disadvantage. We think we're at an advantage, but we're actually at a disadvantage when we look at ourselves and our world through the lens of the kingdom of God. He says you're actually at a disadvantage. Why? Because the advantage that the poor and the needy have is that they don't have anything else to rely upon. And so when Jesus calls them, come follow me, they aren't thinking about what they're leaving behind. They're thinking about what they're gaining in Christ. But for you and for I, for the wealthy, for the affluent. See, we have access to the whole buffet of creation to rely upon. That savings account. Home, comfort, materialism, food to run to, drink to run to, Netflix to run to. The whole buffet of creation to rely upon. You see, the point of the sermon this morning It's not to make you feel guilty for having wealth and possessions. I want to be clear about that. The scriptures are clear. Wealth and possessions are not intrinsically evil. Paul says that in 1 Timothy chapter 6, that it's the love of money that's the root of all evil, not money and possessions. The point of the sermon is not to make you feel guilty for having wealth and possessions, for living in the country that you live in, for being middle-class suburban American. The point of the sermon is to cause you to realize the great risk, the great danger that comes with money and possessions, and to contrast that risk with the great reward that comes with following Christ with all that we have and all that we are. That's the point of the text. That's the invitation of the text. Really two things. The invitation is simply two things. First, it's to see. It's to see Jesus and his call and to see it clearly, not to mute it. Not to turn it down or turn the page, but to see it and to see Jesus and his love for you. Hear me. Jesus loves the rich, those with possessions, just as much as he loves the poor. He he loves suburbanites just as much as he loves homeless people or prostitutes, whatever it might be. He calls the rich and the wealthy into his kingdom just like he calls the poor. But it's much harder 
for the wretch, the wealth, the wealthy and the rich, the affluent, to receive that call. And so see his call. Don't mute it. Hear his words. Don't turn the page. And most importantly, see how Jesus loves you. See how Jesus has so identified with you. We often talk about how Jesus identifies with the poor because he, can't, he became poor. And that is certainly true. But I want you to also see how Jesus identifies with you and with me. In many ways, Jesus is the ultimate rich young ruler. Do you know that? I mean, he is the son of God who has all riches, who possessed all things, who is the ruler of all creation. And what is it that he has done? Because he so loves you. He's given it all away, hadn't he? He gave it all up. The son of God, he gave it all up for you. All that he had, even to the point of death on a cross. Why? Because he so loved you. And so first, see his words, see his call, see his great love for you, how he loves you, how he's identified with you in every way so that he can save you and set you free, that you might enter his kingdom. And then the second invitation of the text that Jesus gives, not only see his love for you, see what he's done for you, but to surrender to his call. You see, the rich, those with possessions and wealth, they have to surrender to his call. They have to actually lay down and give up in order to follow Jesus. The call of Christ is to surrender all that we have and to cultivate kingdom riches. That doesn't mean that you give everything away with abandon, but that you're willing to. You hear the difference there? You hear the distinction? It's that you're, you're willing to. See, we don't follow a, a king who makes this life and the stuff of this life ultimate, but instead a king who calls us to invest all that we are and all that we have in the life to come. In the life to come. I want you to, I want you to hear the words of 1 Timothy chapter 6. If you want to turn there with me, I want to just read these words. I, I love this passage because what you see here is you see Paul, the apostle, giving instructions for the earliest of churches, the earliest Christians. And there are rich among them. There are people with possessions among them. And he, he's giving this instruction and in how he's just building out the, the lordship of Christ and the kingdom life that all Christians are called to enter into. First, starting in verse 9 and 10, 1 Timothy 6, 9 and 10, Paul says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Do you see? He's saying, he's saying see the warning. Hear the words. Verse 10, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Even some who started out following Jesus. Ultimately, their real Lord and their real God proves. And then flip over verse 17. Look at verse 17 and 19. He says, As for the rich in this present age, as those with plenty, those with more than enough, whether it's money or possessions. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. Don't find your identity. Don't take pride in what you have. To set their hopes on the, or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up 
treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of what is truly life. What is truly life. See, this is the invitation. See Jesus' love for you. Hear his words. Pay attention to his call and surrender to his lordship. Will you steward all that you have, investing all that you have in the kingdom? Are you willing to give? Are you willing to give? It's not, are, you not, are you asking the question, how much do I have to give or how much do I get to give? I love when I get those emails. There are people in this church that have seen Jesus, that realize that all that they have is a miracle of his grace, and they steward, they so surrendered to him and steward what they have with such generosity. And we'll get emails like this. and We'll say, Pastor, um, do, do you know of any needs in the church? We'd love to give to meet those needs right now. <laughs> that is a miracle of God's grace. What a testimony of people who are free from idolatry and are living their life in the kingdom of God. And this is the invitation. What will it be? A life built on idols and possessions and inner poverty? Or a life built on Christ? A life built on Christ filled with the riches of his kingdom? That's the question. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the challenge of Mark chapter 10. And I pray that, Father, as we work through the challenge, that we would do so with you as our shepherd, Holy Spirit. That we would be able to discern the distinction between guilt and conviction. And that it is your spirit that invites us, that leads us gently and graciously, convicts us, leading us to repentance. It's your kindness that leads us to repentance so that we might know more of Christ and his kingdom. And so would you help us as we work through chapter 10 to discern your spirit's voice? Would you help us to see your great love for us, Jesus, all that you've done for us as you've left all for us, as you poured out yourself for us, you gave all away for us through life, death, and resurrection. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to surrender, that you'd help us to obey your spirit, lay down our idols this morning, lay them at the foot of the cross that you would help us to steward all that we have, that you would speak to us and show us what that means for each and every one of us to steward what we have, to center our lives on you and nothing else. As we prepare to respond and come to the table, I pray that you, your body and your blood would so fill us, we would be so full that we are lacking nothing and we can give all. So in this time of response, we invite you, Holy Spirit, to minister to us. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.